Recorded Books presents an unabridged recording of How to Be Compassionate, a handbook for creating inner peace and a happier world, by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, translated, edited, and narrated by Jeffrey Hopkins, Ph.D. Forward by Jeffrey Hopkins When the Chinese Communist government in Beijing hears that His Holiness the Dalai Lama has been invited to visit a country, it immediately files an objection with that nation's leaders, who all too often then find his visit to be inconvenient, or downscale the visit, or make it personal. What do Chinese officials fear? The Dalai Lama has no army, no economic power, and no political cards to play. He advocates nonviolence and compassion. What do they fear? The Chinese Communist government in Beijing offered to negotiate with His Holiness anywhere at any time, so long as the Dalai Lama did not bring up the topic of Tibetan independence. He has not raised that topic since 1978, but still, the response from Beijing has been to make all sorts of conditions. What do they fear? His Holiness the Dalai Lama has inspired the rebuilding of Tibetan cultural institutions outside of Tibet. He has asked the religious and political leaders of the world to look beyond their narrow interests to the greater good. He has advocated paying attention to the basic needs of all people, regardless of religion or politics, placing an emphasis on compassion and kindness. Is this what is feared? Unlike Mao, who said power comes from the barrel of a gun, the Dalai Lama says, the greatest power comes from compassion in your heart, the power to gradually create harmony and peace throughout the world. In Tibetan, and increasingly in English, he speaks with breadth, depth, intelligence, humor, and sincerity that inspire insight and motivate people to dedicate themselves to the welfare of others. I believe that he has inspired more people to work together with him on more books than any leader in world history. In this brief book, I have gathered essential teachings of this world-renowned leader whose message that compassion is essential for individuals and for the world is as renowned as the bearer himself. When we think of the Dalai Lama, we immediately think of the compassion he embodies to which he has devoted his entire life. In these pages, he calls us to pay attention to our own hearts, to our orientation to everyone and everything around us. His Holiness points out mistakes of attitude, how we make them, and how we can correct them for a better future. He begins by explaining how caring for others can be a profound source of happiness on an individual level, which can then be extended outward in wider and wider circles. Then, in nine subsequent chapters, he describes basic mistakes that lead to personal turmoil and interpersonal disruption, along with solutions for these problems. He focuses on the nature of hatred, because of its central role in undermining our potential for unbounded compassion. And then, he asks us to examine the nature of consciousness so that we understand how transformation of attitude is possible. This leads to three chapters on how to implement compassion in daily life. And a final chapter of heartfelt advice on how to live with greater and greater care and concern for all beings.
The Dalai Lama's full name, translated from Tibetan into English, syllable by syllable, is Leader, Holiness, Gentleness, Renown, Speech, Dominion, Mind, Goodness, Primordial, Wisdom, Teaching, Hold, Vastness, Ocean, Being, Triad, Controlling, Unparalleled, Glory, Integrity. In Tibetan, this is Jezun, Jambel, Ngawang, Losang, Yeshe, Denzin, Gyatso, Sisum, Ongyur, Tsungba Mebe, Debel, Sangbo. Here is a poem I wrote in the mid-1970s, inspired by the Dalai Lama's name. Leader of the world recognized for true holiness, gentleness personified in persuasive renown, speech of compassion pervading the planet in its dominion, mind of altruistic endeavor reaching all in its goodness, primordial in the depth and range of profound wisdom, teaching encompassing all phenomena in its hold, vastness of love's deeds rippling throughout life's ocean, being so merciful displayed in suffering's triad, controlling the unruly through kindness unparalleled, glory in forms of endeavor sealed in total integrity. May the teacher of the world bearing compassion and wisdom indissoluble see all obstacles dissolve. Throughout the 39 years that I have known the Dalai Lama, and during the 10 that I served as his chief translator on lecture tours in the United States, Canada, Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, Australia, Great Britain, and Switzerland, I have witnessed how he embodies compassion to the very core of his being. It is important for us to recognize that this insightful, compassionate, humorous, and marvelous person rose from Tibetan culture. We need to value that culture as one of the world's great wonders. Tibetan culture extends far beyond Tibet, stretching from Kalmyk Mongolian areas near the Volga River in Europe, where the Volga joins the Caspian Sea, outer and into Mongolia, the Buryat Republic of Siberia, Bhutan, Sikkim, Ladakh, and parts of Nepal. In all of these areas, Buddhist ritual and scholastic studies are conducted in Tibetan. Youths came from throughout these vast regions to study in Tibet, especially in and around its capital, Lhasa, but also throughout its three provinces, usually returning to their own lands after completing their studies, this being until communist takeovers in many of these countries. This highly accessible book, made so by the Dalai Lama's long fascination with science and his three decades of interacting with international scientists, draws from a long tradition of Tibetan techniques for transformation of mind and heart, reminding us of the importance of maintaining a homeland for its preservation. The light shining through His Holiness the Dalai Lama's teachings has its source in that marvel of spiritual culture, offering insights and practices that we and the world so sorely need. Introduction Recognizing the Source of Happiness Our lives are in constant flux, which generates many predicaments. However, when these are faced with a calm and clear mind, supported by spiritual practice, they can all be successfully resolved. By contrast, 
When our minds are clouded by hatred, selfishness, jealousy, and anger, we not only lose control, we lose our sense of judgment. At those wild moments, anything can happen. Our own destructive emotions pollute our outlook, making healthy living impossible. We need to cleanse our own internal perspective through the practice of wise compassion. When you are caught up in a destructive emotion, you have lost one of your greatest assets, your independence. At least for the time being, your mind is disturbed, which weakens your capacity for sound judgment. In the grip of strong lust or hatred, you forget to analyze whether an action is suitable, and you can even speak crazily and make wild gestures. Afterward, when that emotion fades, you often end up embarrassed and sorry for what you have done. This shows us that while you had fallen under the influence of that strong emotion, your capacity to distinguish between good and bad, between suitable and unsuitable, was nowhere to be found. Although unfavorable conditions need to be removed, when they are removed with hatred, the means of relief creates its own problems, because hatred, distorted by its bias, does not see the true situation. But unfavorable conditions can be removed through analysis by examining the facts and discerning the actual situation without any negative emotional side effects. Only human beings can judge and reason. We understand consequences and think in the long term. Human beings also can develop infinite love, whereas animals have only limited forms of affection and love. However, when humans become angry, all this potential is lost. No enemy armed with mere weapons can undo these qualities, but anger can. It is the destroyer. When animals act out of lust or hatred, they do so temporarily or superficially. They are incapable of committing destruction in ever-increasing strength and variety. However, humans can think from a great many points of view. Because our intelligence is so effective, humans can achieve good and bad on a grand scale. When we look deeply into such things, the blueprint for our actions can be found within the mind. Self-defeating attitudes arise not of their own accord, but out of ignorance. Success, too, is found within ourselves. From self-discipline, self-awareness, and clear realization of the defects of anger and the positive effects of kindness come happiness and peace. For instance, at present, you may be a person who gets easily irritated. However, with clear understanding and awareness, your irritability first can be undermined and then replaced. If we allow love and compassion to be dominated by anger, we will sacrifice the best part of our human intelligence, wisdom, which is our ability to decide between right and wrong. Along with selfishness, anger is one of the most serious problems facing the world today. Anger plays a large role in current conflicts, such as those in Asia, the Middle East, and Africa, as well as those between highly industrialized and economically undeveloped nations. These conflicts arise from a failure to understand how much we have in common. Answers cannot be found in the development and use of greater military force nor can they be purely political or technological. The problems we face cannot be blamed upon one individual person or a single cause 
for they are the result of our own negligence. What is required is an emphasis on what we have in common. Hatred and fighting cannot bring happiness to anyone, even to those who win. Violence always produces misery, so it is fundamentally counterproductive. How could a world full of hatred and anger achieve real happiness? If we examine our long history of turmoil, we see the obvious need to find a better way. Attempts by global powers to dominate one another through arms races, whether nuclear, chemical, biological, or conventional, are clearly counterproductive. The sale of weapons, thousands and thousands of types of arms and ammunition, by manufacturers in big countries, fuels the violence. But more dangerous than guns or bombs are hatred, lack of compassion, and lack of respect for the rights of others. External peace is impossible without inner peace. As long as hatred dwells in the human mind, real peace is impossible. We can only solve our problems through truly peaceful means, not just peaceful words, but actions based on a peaceful mind and heart. This is the way we will come to live in a better world. On every level, the most mischievous troublemakers we face are anger and egoism. The kind of egoism I refer to here is not just a sense of I, but an exaggerated self-centeredness that leads to manipulating others. As long as anger dominates our disposition, we have no chance of achieving lasting happiness. In order to achieve peace, tranquility, and real friendship, we must minimize anger and cultivate kindness and a warm heart. As we become nicer human beings, our neighbors, friends, parents, spouses, and children will experience less anger, prompting them to become more warm-hearted, compassionate, and harmonious. The very atmosphere becomes happier which even promotes good health. This is the way to change the world. It is time for all of us, including world leaders, to learn to transcend differences of race, culture, and ideology in order to regard each other with appreciation for our common human situation. To do so would uplift individuals, families, communities, nations, and the world at large. Those countries that have achieved great material progress are beginning to understand that the condition of society and of our physical well-being is closely related to our state of mind. This is where profound change has to begin. Individually, we have to work to change the basic perspectives on which our feelings depend. We can only do so through spiritual training, by engaging in transformative practice with the aim of gradually reorienting the way we perceive others and ourselves. The Need for Compassion and Tolerance There are different levels of happiness— Physical happiness is often related to material things, whereas mental happiness stems from inner or spiritual development. Since our sense of self or I contains dual aspects, physical and mental, we need to address both. Balancing them is crucial to the good of human society. Schemes for world development arise from our basic urge to attain happiness and relieve suffering. But just as we need a long-range perspective to protect our external environment, we need an internal strategy 
that extends far into the future. It is noble to work at external solutions, but they cannot be successfully implemented so long as our minds are ruled by anger and hatred. Living in society, we must share the suffering of our fellow citizens and practice compassion and tolerance toward our enemies as well as our loved ones. We must set an example by our own actions, for mere words cannot convince others of the merit of our values. We must live by the same high standards of integrity and sacrifice we seek to convey to others. This requires moral strength. The ultimate purpose of compassionate values is to serve and benefit the world. This is why it is so important that we always aim to promote the happiness and peace of all beings. For this, we need transformative practice. In life, we are confronted by unfavorable circumstances, one after another, day in and day out. By simply reacting, we generate counterproductive emotions, specifically lust, hatred, and confusion, which produce even more suffering in the future. Those who reject transformative practice generally do not see lust and hatred as problematic. Instead of viewing these destructive emotions as toxic, they allow themselves to be controlled by these attitudes. Those who do choose transformative practice, however, view lust and hatred as emotions to be avoided, and for the most part, these people are more peaceful and happier. I question the popular assumption that ethics has no place in politics, and that spiritually-minded people should sequester themselves from the ways of the world. Such a view lacks a proper perspective on the individual's relation to society and the role of compassionate values in our lives. Religions themselves often call for giving up attachment to the world, but this does not mean that you can no longer be an agent for positive change. In 1954, I traveled to Beijing to meet with Mao Zedong. During our final meeting in 1955, he told me, Religion is poisoned for two reasons. The first is that it harms development of the nation. The second is that it diminishes the population. His thought was that if many people became monastic, it would reduce the number of births. In hindsight, we can say now that more monastics are just what China needed to reduce overpopulation. Mao simply did not understand the real meaning of religion. He did not know that the essence of religion is caring and concern for others. Ethical behavior is just as crucial to a politician as it is to a religious practitioner. Dangerous consequences follow when politicians and rulers forget moral principles. Whether we believe in God or karma, karma being the power of actions and their effects, strong ethical values are the foundation of society and must become the underpinning of our daily lives. Still, the good intentions of various religions and philosophies are not sufficient. We must implement them day by day in social interaction. Then we can realize the full value of these teachings. When you generate a well-founded aspiration to enhance the happiness of others, you become more humane. The ultimate purpose of transformative mental practice is to help others. In order to do so, you must remain in society 
contributing according to your ability. As you develop inwardly, you can contribute outwardly with greater force. Counteracting Destructiveness We all want happiness and do not want suffering. And since the pain we seek to avoid mainly stems from twisted mental attitudes, we have to consider whether there are any forces that oppose these destructive emotions. If, for instance, anger causes suffering, then we must find its antidote. The antidote for anger is compassion. Anger and compassion are both attitudes, but they have contradictory ways of seeing the same object. Their outlooks are exactly opposite. If a room is too hot, the only way to reduce the heat is to introduce cold. Just as heat and cold oppose each other, so too do mental states such as anger and compassion. To the extent you develop one, the other decreases. This is the way that counterproductive states of mind are reduced and finally removed. Antidotes exist and must be found and introduced. To help you in your effort to resolve your own problems, picture yourself as a sick person who has come under the influence of three destructive diseases, lust, hatred, and ignorance. Transformative practices are like medicines, acting in opposition to these internal ailments. The practice of compassion is like a remedy for ruinous overemphasis on yourself. The sole source of peace within you, in the family, the country, and the world is altruism love, and compassion. At the core of our existence as human beings is the desire to live purposeful, meaningful lives. Our purpose is to develop a warm heart. We find meaning in our lives by being a friend to everyone. Altruism is the cure because it is the authentic way to conduct your life. How to Help We need to base our lives on altruistic concern, aim not just at our own private welfare, but also at the good of society. As I have mentioned, if people could enjoy both external prosperity and inner qualities of goodness, that indeed would provide a comfortable human life. Therefore, we need to engage in activities for the welfare of the world as a whole, such as building schools, hospitals, and factories. However, since happiness mainly derives from inner attitudes, helping others should not be limited to providing food, shelter, and clothing, but must also include replacing the basic causes of suffering with the basic causes of happiness. Just as smart public policy aims to educate people so that they can take care of their own lives, so it is with the practice of altruism. The most effective way to help others is by teaching them what to adopt in their future practice and what to discard from their current behavior. People need to learn how to bring about their own happiness. Each one of us is responsible for all of humankind and for the environment in which we live. We need to think of each other as true brothers and sisters, and we need to be deeply concerned with each other's welfare. We must seek to lessen the suffering of others, Rather than solely working to acquire wealth, we need to do something meaningful 
something seriously directed toward the welfare of humanity as a whole. To do this, you need to recognize that the whole world is part of you. Foolish people are always thinking only of themselves, and the result is always negative. Wise people think of others, helping them as much as they can, and the result is happiness. Love and compassion are beneficial, both for you and for others. Through kindness toward others, your mind and heart will open to peace. Expanding this inner environment to the larger community around you will bring unity, harmony, and cooperation. Expanding peace further still to nations and then to the world will bring mutual trust, mutual respect, sincere communication, and finally, successful joint efforts to solve the world's problems. All this is possible. But the first step is to change ourselves. Now let us turn to considering mistakes we commonly make and how to counteract them. First, let us address the problem of anger and then the lust that lies behind anger. This leads in turn to examining the exaggerations on which these self-defeating emotions are built. I will offer what I hope you will find are helpful techniques, both to alleviate your problems and to develop a kind-hearted outlook that will affect you and those around you in a positive way. If you find these techniques beneficial, please implement them. If not, set them aside for now. They may become helpful later. Chapter 1 Does Anger Protect You? Mistake Using Anger to Fight Anger It may be that if you remain a humble, honest, and contented person, some of your friends, neighbors, co-workers, or rivals will take advantage of you. Simply allowing this to happen may be counterproductive for you, your family, and others. However, anger cannot be overcome by anger. If a person shows anger to you, and you show anger in return, the result is a disaster. If you nurse hatred, you will never be happy, even in the lap of luxury. By contrast, if you control your anger and show its opposite, love, compassion, tolerance, and patience, then not only do you remain in peace, but gradually the anger of others also will diminish. No one can argue with the fact that in the presence of anger, peace is impossible. It is only through kindness and love that peace of mind can be achieved. Although anger may lead to temporary success and yield some satisfaction for a brief period, ultimately anger will cause further difficulties. There is no need to enumerate the many instances of this throughout history, including in this new century. With anger, all actions are swift. However, when we face problems, with sincere concern for others, success may take longer, but it will be more durable. When someone is trying to take advantage of you, first you must clearly understand that this other person is a human being and has a right to be happy. With respect and compassion toward that person, you can act according to the circumstances he or she has created. This means responding strongly, if necessary, but never losing your compassionate perspective. In fact, compassion is the only way to handle such a problem.
since anger and irritation will only make effective action more difficult. At first, it may be a struggle to maintain compassion for someone who is being threatening or hurtful. But if you try again and again, you will find the way to react as strongly as the circumstances demand without losing a loving attitude. Anger needs to be controlled, but not hidden from yourself. Recognize your reactions. Do not deny them, for if you do, your compassion will be superficial. When others are mean or nasty to you, it is difficult to stay compassionate. But it is not unlike the relationship between kind parents and their children. Sometimes a child is foolish and naughty, and in order to stop that behavior, the mother or father acts in accordance with the circumstances. This may require strong or harsh words, perhaps even punishing the child, but without losing compassion. That is the way to handle the problem. Summary Reflection If a person shows anger to you, and you show anger in return, the result is a disaster. However, if you control your anger and show its opposite, love, compassion, tolerance, and patience, then not only do you remain in peace, but gradually the anger of others also will diminish. Anger may lead to temporary success, yielding a little satisfaction for a brief period, but ultimately will cause further difficulties. When someone tries to take advantage of you, first, you must clearly understand that this person is a human being and has a right to be happy. Then, you can act according to the circumstances he or she has created, responding strongly if necessary, but never losing your compassionate perspective. Compassion is the key. Chapter 2 Learning that tough circumstances can be valuable. Mistake Reacting to adverse situations as just hateful. In my own life, the most difficult periods have been the times when I have gained the most knowledge and experience. If everything is going well, you can maintain the pretense that life is a smooth ride. However, when you face really desperate situations, you have to deal with reality. Another benefit of adversity is that hard times can build determination and inner strength. Through them, we can also come to appreciate the uselessness of anger. We can even learn to nurture a deep caring and respect for troublemakers. Because, by creating trying circumstances, they provide us with invaluable opportunities to practice tolerance and patience. This is not easy to appreciate, so let us explore this topic further. During a difficult period, you can learn to develop inner strength, determination, and courage to face your problems. If you become discouraged, that is the real failure. You have lost a valuable chance to develop. To remain determined is itself a gain. During a difficult period, you can come closer to reality, to peeling off all pretensions. When things are going smoothly, life can easily become like an official ceremony in which protocol, such as how you walk and how you speak, becomes more important than content. But at a time of crisis, it becomes obvious 
that these ritual trappings are pointless. You have to become more practical. When we are happy and everything is going according to plan, transformative practice doesn't seem urgent. But when we face unavoidable problems, such as sickness, old age, death, or other very difficult situations, it becomes crucial to control our emotions and to use our good human mind to determine how to face that problem with patience and calm. My life has not been an altogether happy one. I have had to pass through many difficult times, including losing my country to Chinese communist invaders and trying to reestablish our culture in countries outside Tibet. Yet, I regard these difficult periods as among the most important times in my life. Through them, I have gained many new experiences and learned many new ideas. When I was young and living high above the Tibetan city of Lhasa in the Botala Palace, I frequently looked at the life of the city through a telescope. I also learned a lot from the gossip of the sweepers in the palace. They served as my newspaper, telling me what the regent was doing and what corruption and scandals were going on. I was always happy to listen, and they were proud to be telling the Dalai Lama what was happening in the streets. But the harsh events that unfolded after the invasion in 1950 forced me to become directly involved in issues that otherwise would have been kept at a distance. Over the years, I have come to prefer the life I now lead, committed to social action in this world of suffering. The most difficult time for me came after the Chinese army invaded Tibet, when I was trying to satisfy the invaders so that the situation would not worsen. When a small delegation of Tibetan officials signed a 17-point agreement with the Chinese, but without my consent or that of the Tibetan government, we were left with no alternative but to attempt to work within that agreement. Many Tibetans resented it, but when they expressed their opposition, the Chinese reacted even more harshly. I was caught in the middle, trying to cool down the situation. Without consulting me, the two acting prime ministers of Tibet complained about conditions to the Chinese government. I was then asked to dismiss them. This is the kind of problem I had to face every day, as long as we were in Tibet. Against Chinese wishes, I went to India in 1956 to celebrate the Buddha's 2,500th birthday. While I was there, I had to make the difficult decision of whether or not to return to Tibet. I was receiving messages about open revolts against the Chinese in eastern Tibet, and many officials in Tibet advised that it would not be safe for me to return. Also, from past experience, I knew that as China developed more military strength in Tibet, its attitude would become harsher. We could see that there was not much hope, but at that time it was not clear that we would have a full guarantee of support from the government of India or from any other government. In the end, I chose to return to Tibet, where the situation became more and more complicated and difficult. Three years later, in 1959, when I joined a mass escape to India, the situation became easier because I no longer faced the dilemma of choosing which path to take. The decision made, we could now put all of our energy and time into building a healthy community with a modern system of education for our children and young people 
while at the same time trying to preserve our traditional ways of studying and practicing Buddhism. Now we were able to work in an atmosphere of freedom without fear. Looking back, I can see how my own practice has benefited from a life of great turbulence and trouble. You, too, can come to see the hardships you endure as deepening your practice. Real compassion extends to each and every sentient being, not just to friends or family or those in terrible situations. True love and compassion extend even to those who wish to harm you. Try to imagine that your enemies are purposefully making trouble in order to help you accumulate positive forces for shaping the future, what Buddhists call merit, by facing these troubles with patience. If your life goes along too easily, you become soft. Trying circumstances help you develop inner strength and the courage to face difficulty without emotional breakdown. Who teaches this? Not your friend, but your enemy. Adversity helps build character. Anger destroys love and compassion, and anger is undermined by patience, which is best practiced with an enemy. Without adversaries, you could not fully engage in the practice of patience, tolerance, and forbearance. We need enemies to strengthen our practice. And from this spiritual viewpoint, we can even be grateful to them. In terms of training in altruism, an enemy is really your guru, your teacher. Since enemies are the greatest teachers of altruism, Instead of generating hatred for them, we must view them with gratitude. Look at it this way. It is not necessary for someone to be favorably disposed toward you in order for you to respect and cherish them. For example, when we want rain and it rains, we are grateful, even though there is no motivation on the part of the shower to help us. The presence or absence of motivation makes no difference in terms of whether something or someone can help us accumulate merit. Therefore, even though our enemies may be motivated by the desire to harm us, they can do us tremendous good. Enemies are the best way to cultivate the highly meritorious virtue of patience. And without patience, you could not develop true love and compassion because you would be distracted by irritation. Meditation Here is a way to appreciate the value of enemies. Consider that in order to build character, the practice of patience is essential. See that the best way to practice patience requires an enemy. Understand that in this way enemies are very valuable for the opportunities they provide. Decide that instead of getting angry with those who block your wishes, you will inwardly respond with gratitude. By seeing things this way, you can change your attitude toward adversity. This is very difficult, but very rewarding. By considering the matter deeply, you will see that even great enemies who intend you serious harm are also, in a sense, extending great kindness to you. For only when faced with the work of enemies can you learn real inner strength. Enemies give us this kind of chance. 
Also, in terms of the practice of patience, an enemy is the most benevolent of helpers. Through cultivating patience, your merit increases. Therefore, enemies are primary instigators of our spiritual advancement. Reflecting on Change Examine your feelings to see who is being held closely and who is being considered at a distance. Investigate the matter this way. You naturally feel close to your friend. Regarding your enemy, you feel not only distant, but sometimes anger or irritation. You feel nothing for a neutral person. However, it is by no means certain that a friend, an enemy, or a neutral person will at all times either help, harm, or do neither. When you are generating negative thoughts and negative feelings, such as hatred or anger, even a friend is seen as an enemy. When negative thoughts toward an enemy disappear, the enemy becomes a friend. By reflecting in these ways, you can loosen the hold that afflictive emotions like anger and hatred have on you. Chapter 3 Cherishing Others as a Way to Happiness Mistake Being Egotistical Could you put others first and consider yourself next? Surprisingly, perhaps, you will find that this approach works even from a selfish viewpoint. Let me explain how this is possible. You want happiness and do not want suffering. And if you show other people kindness, love, and respect, they will respond in kind increasing your happiness. But if you show other people anger and hatred, they will show you the same, and you will lose your own happiness. So I say, if you are selfish, be wisely selfish. Ordinary selfishness focuses only on your own needs. But if you are wisely selfish, you will treat everyone just as well as you now treat those close to you. This strategy will produce more satisfaction for you and more happiness. So even from a selfish viewpoint, you get better results by respecting others, serving others, and reducing your own self-centeredness. Be wisely selfish. Wise people serve others sincerely, putting the needs of others above their own. The ultimate result will be that you will get more happiness. The kind of selfishness that sets off fighting, quarreling, stealing, and harsh words. Forgetting other people's welfare, always thinking, I, 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 will result in your own loss. Others may speak nice words in front of you, but behind your back they will not speak so nicely. They will make note of your selfishness and respond in kind. The remedy is to be sincerely concerned with the well-being of others and to act accordingly. After all, even though currently you may not be concerned with other people, you are very much concerned with yourself, no question about it, which means that you must want to achieve a peaceful mind and a happier daily life. The best way to do that is by practicing more kindness and tolerance. There is no need to change the furniture in your house or move to a new home. Your neighbor may be very noisy or very difficult, but so long as your own mind is calm and peaceful, neighbors will not bother you much. If you are calm, 
even your enemy cannot disturb you. However, if you are generally irritable, even when your best friend visits, you cannot become really happy. This is why I say that you are better off being wisely selfish. This way you can fulfill your own selfish motive to be happy. That is much better than being self-centered or foolishly selfish, which will not succeed in bringing you more happiness. Try this approach. I think you will be delighted with the result. Chapter 4 We Are Our Own Troublemakers Mistake Inflating Attraction Both lust and hatred are based on bias. Both develop based on inflating the nature of things far beyond what actually is. This mistake spawns all other troublesome emotions. Here is how it happens. When you come to the mistaken conclusion that you exist as a fully independent entity, as opposed to being interrelated to other people and things, this leads to an artificial distinction between yourself and others. This, in turn, encourages you to become attached to what you see as being on your own side and to resist what seems to be on the side of others. This attachment inflates the value of your own qualities, such as physical appearance, ethnic origin, wealth, education, or fame, and opens the door to pride. So, lust and hatred stem from an exaggerated notion of ourselves as being independent entities, when in fact we depend on many variables, past and present. And once we put too much confidence in a solidly existing, palpable, overly concrete I, we open the door to discrimination. Once there is I, there is also you. Discrimination is followed by attachment to ourself and anger toward the other, for we get angry at what foils our desires. Anger is fomented by the misconception that its object and you are established as enemy and victim in and of yourselves. And when we get angry, the object of our anger appears far more awful than it truly is. Think about it. Steps from Awareness to Misconception Consider the steps by which this happens. When we first encounter something or someone nice, we briefly take notice, acknowledging its presence. The mind at this point is pretty much neutral, but when we pay more attention to it, the object appears to be more attractive in a way that is integral to it, instead of having a value that we attach to it. When the mind adheres to an object this way, as if it truly exists the way it appears to. Lust for it and hatred for whatever interferes with getting it can set in. A fundamental mistake about the nature of things has taken hold. And, as this illusion of independent existence becomes stronger, the poisons of twisted emotions can take effect. The turning point from mere awareness to misconception comes when we inflate the goodness or badness of the thing so that it seems inherently good or bad, inherently attractive or unattractive, inherently beautiful or ugly. Accepting this false appearance as fact is an act of ignorance. 
that opens the way for lust, hatred, and myriad other counterproductive emotions. These destructive emotions, in turn, lead to actions based on lust and hatred. These actions, which will eventually lead to suffering, are not seen for what they really are, but are mistaken for a way to happiness. When our own self is involved, we emphasize this connection. Now it is my body, my stuff, my friend, or my car. When something we see as desirable is involved, we exaggerate its attractiveness, obscuring its faults and disadvantages, and become excessively attached to it. In this way, we are forcibly led into lust, as if by a ring in our nose. When something we see as undesirable is involved, this time we exaggerate the object's unattractiveness, making something minor into a big defect, ignoring other good qualities. We begin to see this object as interfering with our pleasure, and now are being led into hatred, again as if by a ring in our nose. As you become more self-centered, my this, my that, my body, my wealth, anyone who interferes immediately becomes an object of anger. As long as lust, hatred, attachment, jealousy, or confusion are present, all kinds of harmful actions become possible. Under these circumstances, every one of us has the potential to do harm, commit a crime, or even commit murder. Although you make much of my friends and my relatives, they cannot help you at birth or at death. You come here alone and you leave alone. If on the day of your death a friend could accompany you, attachment to that friend might make sense, but this cannot be. When you are reborn into a totally unfamiliar situation, if your friend from the last lifetime could be of some help, that too would be something to consider, but this also is not to be. Yet in between birth and death, for many decades, it is my friend, my sister, my brother. This misplaced emphasis does not help at all, except to create more bewilderment and lust. Driven by such lust, you become angry when people do not live up to your expectations. You are not making others happy, and certainly not yourself. When friends are overemphasized, enemies also come to be overemphasized. When you are born, you do not know anyone, and no one knows you. Even though all of us want happiness and do not want suffering, you like the faces of some people and think, these are my friends, and dislike the faces of others and think, these are my enemies. You affix identities and nicknames to them and end up practicing the generation of desire for the former and the generation of hatred for the latter. What value is there in this? None. The problem is that too much energy is being expended on concern for a level no deeper than the superficial affairs of this life. The profound loses out to the trivial. Once you are intent on the fineries of life, your afflictive emotions increase, which in turn brings about more bad deeds. These counterproductive actions only lead to trouble, making you and those around you uncomfortable at best. You acquire more and more material things to the point where your practice has become 
devotion to the superficialities of this life, cultivating desire for friends and hatred for enemies, and trying to figure out ways to act on these afflictive emotions. Watch how you get into trouble. Watch the process by which you make a mistake by imagining a time when you were filled with hatred or lust. Does it not seem that the hated or desired person or thing is extremely substantial, very concrete? But look more closely, and you will notice a conflict between appearance and reality. Notice how you first perceive the object, then determine if the object is good or bad, then conclude that the object's goodness or badness exists inherently in the object, then generate lust or hatred according to whether the object's goodness or badness has been exaggerated. The benefit of insight is that it prevents us from attributing goodness or badness beyond what is actually there. This makes it possible to reduce, and perhaps eventually to end, lust and hatred, since these emotions are built on exaggeration. This, in turn, leaves more room for healthy emotions and virtues to develop. In the next chapter, we will continue this line of investigation.